The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. I bring your greetings on behalf of Jane as well. That we get to come back one more time after this in two weeks, and then camp starts at Mount Hermon, and we're looking forward to that. Uh, we have about two-thirds level that we're allowed to do there of our family camp, and so we're excited to be able to actually have campers on site. A lot of things have been shut down, but we're going to do what we can, and we're uh, very grateful to God for that, and he's been taking good care of us in, in the meantime. And as you prepare for a new pastor, we talked about this two weeks ago when I was here, but I want to remind you of what I told you two weeks ago about how to welcome in a new pastor and family. And I'm going to give you five things I told you two weeks ago because I want them embedded into your head. First of all, embrace and welcome them warmly. You know, go out of your way, uh, write cards, put, put gift cards in there to local restaurants so they can do those without having to pay for it themselves. Have them over into your house uh, for a meal just get to know them and enjoy them, but inundate them with, with love and help them get comfortable here in this new setting for them. Secondly, allow them to be themselves. They're not gonna be like your previous pastor. They're gonna be themselves. And that's how God wired them, made them, built them. That's who you want them to be. Allow Michael to be Michael and Kristen to be Kristen to be how God has wired them. Third, allow Michael, ready, to make changes. Allow him to make changes. And uh, he, that will happen over time. If you like it or not, it will happen over time. But allow him to do that. Let God work through him and, and the board here and the staff to make some changes as you go forward. Fourth, allow Michael to make some mistakes. Because guess what? He's going to make some mistakes and he's human. And so allow him to do that and be gracious to him. Uh, this is the first time he's been the senior pastor of a place, although he's got a lot of great experience Allow him to make some mistakes. And by the way, even if he had been very, very experienced in this role, he'd still make mistakes because we all do. And then lastly, pray for Michael. Pray for Kristen. Pray for Arya. Pray for them as they come. Pray every day for them. When you may be at your dinner table, pray for them. Pray for them that God would just uh, prepare them as they say goodbye. Prepare them as they come. Prepare them as they minister and all of those things. So those things, uh, just to give you a little bit of insight of, of a new pastor coming, coming your way. I think it's going to be great. Well, we are um, working our way through the book of Acts. We're getting closer to the end, but because of uh, Michael coming in just a short period of time, we're gonna do some fast forwarding here and there and get to the end before, before they arrive. So we're actually gonna go into chapter 19 of Acts for this, this morning. And I would kind of call this, this, isn't the title of the message, but kind of the hocus pocus section of, of the book of Acts. We're gonna see some things that are a little bit weird, a little bit different, have to do with um, evil spirits, demon possession, sorcerers, exorcists, things like that. And, um, and so it's gonna be a little bit uh, unique and interesting. If you're watching from home and you have young kids in the room, um, I will try to keep it uh, to a place that they could be there, but at the same time, just be aware of that in case you don't want them to hear some of these, these things. And in particular, we're gonna look at today some individuals who were much involved in dabbling, not just dabbling, that was their life to be in this kind of a, of a lifestyle as sorcerers and a drastic change that comes into their life because of Christ coming into their life and how they, they dealt with that is pretty amazing. So take your Bibles, if you would, and please turn them to the book of Acts to chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. So fifth book of your New Testament, 
uh, two-thirds of the way through that, that book to Acts chapter 19. And what we're going to find is, is Paul the Apostle is now in the town of Ephesus. Ephesus is a key player in the New Testament, this, this city. Uh, this city is a strategic in lots of ways. Um, Paul spent two years of his ministry in Ephesus, which for him is a long time in one place. He planted a church there. He even wrote a letter to them, which became part of the Bible, which is the book of Ephesians, which is written to the people of, of Ephesus, the church there. The city of Ephesus is a strategic uh, trade center, but more so than that, it's a religious hotspot. It's a religious hotspot. In the, the city there is the huge temple to the Greek goddess Artemis, also in Roman lore, uh, Diana. The daughter of Zeus, if that tells you anything. She's a he you know, heavy hitter when it comes to uh, the, the god and goddess world of that uh, era and the Greek culture and myth. Um, daughter of Zeus, twin sister of Apollo. She was the goddess, get this, of the hunt goddess of the wilderness, goddess of wild animals, goddess of the moon. And then somehow with all of that, she's also the goddess of chastity. How that fits with all the other ones, I'm not sure. But uh, goddess of the hunt, the wilderness, wild animals, the moon, and, and chastity. And the main industry in Ephesus, and why this is important, we'll see in a little bit, is, is the main industry is all built around the temple. So like the artisans of the day, they would build like little shrines that you could buy. They would build little um, statues of Artemis that you could take with you for, you know, blessing and things like that. And so the majority of the trade there in Ephesus was all built around this worship of this goddess Artemis or Diana. And due to this, Ephesus becomes a hot spot for demonic activity of, of things that are outside of what would be considered appropriate and I'm going to walk us through this story step by step, stopping along the way, not only to bring about understanding, but also application, and most importantly, some conviction that at least has been a part of my life, is this passage has actually been very influential in my life, especially the second half of it, as we'll see in just a little bit. So let's pray and ask God to do his work in this, our morning together. Lord, we come before you and we realize that some of the things we're going to talk about are things that some people don't even believe can even happen or are true. That there's a Satan and there's demons and there's angels and some don't even believe that there's you. But Lord, we know by reading your word that all of this is true and real. Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds and our wills and our actions to what you would have us do with these things, I pray, Lord. May you bring us conviction where we need to be convicted. May we do change where we need to change. Thank you, Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen. So as I said, we're going to just go through this step by step. We're going to start in chapter 19 and verse 11. And first look at verses 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. <laughs> Should we read that again? Let's not just gloss over that. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that happens every day. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. 
Well, that's, that's unusual and very different. Paul was doing, it says, extraordinary miracles. Or another way to say that same uh, word is extraordinary. 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 These were not ordinary things. They were beyond ordinary, beyond normal. And Jesus used miracles when he was on this earth to authenticate that he was indeed the, the Messiah and that the things that he said had had, you know, weight because of the miracles. Same with, with Paul, the apostle, that because of the, the miracles that he did, people listened to him. They wanted to be around him, of course, because they wanted to be healed. And it gave him uh, authenticity as he shared about the Messiah who was, was Jesus. And Paul's powers included, get this, the use of if he just, just handkerchiefs or aprons just touched his skin, it says, they would take those and they would take them to other people who needed healing of diseases or having a demon cast out of them and boom, by just touching what Paul had touched, they would be healed. Crazy. Now, in modern day, there have been some faith healers who have done that as well. Um, <clears throat> at least that's what we see if you watch television and you will see that they will say to those who watch their program, um, I have prayed upon this cloth just like Paul did. I have touched this cloth. And if you want this, you can get this cloth and we will send it to you so you can be healed. If you send this much money, and then I have no idea if the cloth actually works, if they actually get healed. But if you spend a certain amount of money, then in fact, you're gonna get healed. There's no strings attached to what Paul is doing. There's no money behind this. This is just all from God. And the power that Paul has through the power of God is extraordinary, extra ordinary. We see this earlier in the book of Acts in the life of the apostle Peter, if you remember, back in Acts chapter 5. In fact, it says in verse 15 this, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Think of that. They were laying the sick out, the diseased out, and Peter would just walk by and the sun, you know, the shadow would, 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 would hit them and boom, they would be healed. This incredible, crazy power that came to Peter and through Paul, through, through the Lord. Of course, we know that Jesus healed people from a distance, you know, so it's possible to not actually be, have hands laid on somebody for them to be healed. And Paul, it says, was healing people for their diseases, variety of health issues, and casting out of evil spirits. Thus, the hocus pocus section. Let's talk about this for a little bit. Let's talk about this whole realm of evil spirits. Here's what I want you to hear more than anything else. Evil spirits are real. A lot of people will say they believe in God, but they don't believe in a devil. They'll say they believe in a heaven, but they don't believe in a hell. They, they believe in angels, but they don't believe in demons. The problem is all of those come from the same book. Same book. Real entities. Demons are fallen angels, angels that were in heaven and in rebellion went against God. The head of that was a guy named, an angel named Lucifer, who then is Satan. And God cast them out of heaven because of the rebellion. A third of the angels in heaven left and now are warring against the ways of God and against his people. That's been going on since the beginning of the creation of people. Evil spirits take up residence inside of people. They can do that. They can raise havoc and chaos and destruction instead of a life of a person. They're not just folklore. This isn't just, you know, a Hollywood movie 
but it's real. Therefore, therefore, do not dabble in these things. Do not dabble in the ways of Satan. Put your curiosity away. And I'm going to say some things that might just sound like, you know, just over, over the top, but I believe this. Don't watch horror movies. Some people love to be scared. I don't like to be scared, so it's easy for me not to watch them. Some people just love to be scared. They love all this kind of stuff. Stay away from them. Why? They're completely contrary to the ways of, of God. They're filled with evil, murder, violence, sex, all the things that Satan is for and God is against. Don't engage with Ouija boards or tarot cards or palm readers or fortune tellers. Stay away from the Wicca and, and the occult and all of that. Far, far away from it. So I grew up in a Christian home. Gave my life to Christ as a, as a young boy. Right away embraced Christianity. And, and that was my heart. At age 12, felt called, if you will, to be a pastor. And what I say by that, it's just like at age 12, I really started to want to be a pastor and it never went away. But it wasn't until high school when something clicked in me that really convinced me that Christianity was absolutely true. And it was this. I did some study of Satanism. I wasn't dabbling in satanic things. I was not dabbling in the occult. I wasn't anything like that. I just was learning some things about Satanism. And in the midst of that, something clicked, something figured out in my head, and it was this. Satanism goes diametrically opposed to Christianity. Not diametrically opposed to Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or Jehovah's Witness. It goes against Christianity and Christianity alone. I started to think through it. For instance, Satanism is about darkness. Christianity is about light. Satanism has the number six, 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 six. Christianity, God's number is number seven. Satanism is about a goat. Christianity is about a lamb. Satanism is about an upside down inverted cross. Christianity has an upright cross. In the Satanic Bible, there's nine commandments that go completely against the 10 commandments that are in the, the scriptures. There's fear versus peace, et cetera, et cetera. It goes directly, diametrically opposed to Christianity. And that's when it clicked to me. This is real. Christianity is because the enemy goes against it and not other faithful religions. On top of that, Jane and I can tell you about a time when we were in my office in Colorado and in that office was two other couples. One couple was uh, there because they had a ministry of casting out demons. The other couple was there because the wife uh, had uh, demons inside of her. And when we saw the manifestation of those demons and then the power of God overcoming them and casting them out, there's no way that we could ever say that that stuff's not real. It was so real and vile and wicked that we all the more said, we've got to do everything we can to help people come to the light and, and understand Christianity and have a faith in Jesus and have an eternity in heaven so they don't have to be in that kind of a setting for the rest of eternity in hell. So let's keep going, verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Think of this. 
itinerant Jewish exorcist. Can you see your business card? What do you do for a living? I'm an itinerant Jewish exorcist. You say, well, what does that mean? Itinerant means they travel around like there used to be itinerant preachers. You know, back in the day, they would go from town to town and, and they would preach God's word and they set up a tent for a few, few weeks and they go to the next town. These are itinerant Jewish exorcists. Well, what's an exorcist? An exorcist is somebody who casts out evil spirits, who casts out demons. There was a famous movie back in 1973. I had to look up the year. I was 10 years old. I did not see it. And I will never see it. And it's called The Exorcist. It was very popular. And it was, my understanding, very freaky. Um, so that term is when, when someone casts out an evil spirit from somebody else. And there must have been a big demon problem there in Ephesus if they got a whole bunch of these, you know, exorcists you know, walking around and doing their work there. As we know that, again, the, the temple of Artemis is there and there's so much focus on this and Satan was running amok there in Ephesus. And uh, interestingly enough, these Jewish traveling exorcists, get this, they don't use the name of Jesus if you see this, but they, um, they include Paul's name. But they're saying this, they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Instead of just using the name of Jesus and his power, they say, I adjure you uh, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Interesting uh, way of doing that. They were using Jesus' name, but it wasn't their Jesus. It was Paul's Jesus that they were talking about. And the power won't be there if he's not your Jesus. He won't be there. The power won't be there. These ones in particular that are being focused on here are called uh, the seven sons of a guy named Sceva. Verse 14, Sceva was a Jewish religious leader. He's mentioned here as the high priest. There's no other mention of him anywhere else in the Bible but here. And so this is a, a family ministry. Can you imagine that? Seven brothers, all these itinerant exorcists going around and, and casting out demons, or at least trying to. And I have to wonder, like, how effective were they? I have to come to the conclusion, maybe not all that effective if now they're changing how they do it to include, you know, Jesus' name and Paul's name to try to figure it out. So maybe they figured out that, that he was having a lot better results than they were ever having. And I have all sorts of questions for this ministry family, like... Were they forced by their father to do this work as exorcists? Uh, what motivated them? Did they have success in casting out demons? Um, uh, did, did they get along as brothers? Did they, what did they talk about at the dinner table? <laughs> I, I just have lots of questions that I don't have any answers for. But the demon that they are trying to cast out seems to mock them. Verse 15, Jesus I know. And Paul I recognize. But who are you? I know who Jesus is. The demon says, of course he does. Because at one time he was in heaven with Jesus. Paul, I recognize. I know who Paul is. I mean, Paul is, you know, enemy target number one as far as human beings right now because he's having such an effect for Jesus. We know who Paul is. Who are you guys? They're pretenders. They're not the real deal. They don't even have Jesus inside of them. They're saying the, the Jesus whom Paul talks about is the one that's going to cast you out. And he's like, demons all not impressed. And look at what happens, verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. 
And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Wow. Evil spirits can't have extra human power in them for the reasons people are drawn to wanting them inside of them. It's like a superhero movie, right? One against seven, and the one overpowers the seven easily to the point where it hurts them, harms them. Their clothes have even been ripped off. It's a very violent encounter. They go running out, uh, all beaten, all shameful, no, no, no doubt, and the word gets around. I wonder, I wonder if they ever came to Christ, these seven brothers, because of this encounter and knowing that what they had was not the real deal. But we don't know. There were shockwaves that reverberated around uh, Ephesus due to this attack. This is that everyone heard about it. Can you imagine the, the gossip chain that must have got around fast? And it says that fear spread throughout the city, verse 17. Unsettling, right, to think of a crazed man in town. I mean, do you let your kids walk down the street anymore? Do you want to walk down the street anymore? He overcame seven, seven people. And it says that fear spread throughout the, the city. But it says this, the name of the Lord was extolled. I had to look up extolled. I didn't know that word. NIV says the word of the Lord was held in high honor. The New American Standard, the King James Version says the name of the Lord was magnified. Interesting. Why? Because they knew that when Paul did this with the name of Jesus, things changed, but these guys, nothing happened. God's name, Jesus' name was extolled. It was held in high honor. It was magnified through this. They realized that the name of Jesus had power. It had authority, and it actually made things work. And now get this. Look at verses 18 and 19, and these are the verses that have had a big effect on my own personal life. Also, many of those who were now believing came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. You said, really? That's had a big impact on you? Let me read it again. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. What kind of people were these? These were sorcerers, previous sorcerers, but they were now believers. They gave their life to Christ, verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Something with this encounter that happened with this demon-possessed man with these seven sons of Sceva, right after this, this takes place. I have to believe that one affected the other. One event affects the next event here. And from this comes drastic measures from this group of hocus-pocus guys that were sorcerers over the magic spells and all of that, the conjurers, who now have come to faith in Christ, but they realize they need to do something more than just having a belief. They need to go with an action beyond that. There were those who practiced magic arts, it says, or as the message puts it, all kinds of witches and warlocks came out of the woodwork. 
We learn in verse 18 that these sorcerers are now believers and now they're going to get drastic in what they do. What do they do? How do they take their past life and now completely get rid of it? You see, when you give your life to Christ, it doesn't mean that at that moment necessarily that all the stuff that you have divulged in in your past just easily goes away. Sometimes right away, Jesus does that work in your life and boom, you're a changed person completely. But other times it doesn't seem to work that way. And you got to take some drastic measures. You got to take some drastic steps to make a change. Not only at the time of conversion, but let's face it, even after you've given your life to Christ, maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you get to get into some habits and some behaviors that are harmful. And you have to make some drastic, take some drastic measures to make some changes to your life. You got to make it, you got to go big. And this is what they do. Let's look at what they did. First of all, verse 18, they confess their sin. They confess their sin. It says, many of those who were believers came confessing. Confessing. What is confession? That you just simply tell, this is, this is what I've done. You confess to the appropriate people, the right people. They, they do this publicly. They admitted that their sin was against the ways of God. That the things they dabbled in, they need to get rid of in their life. They need to make a change. They're genuinely sorry for their past life and, and their magical ways that were of Satan and not of God. And they're going to make a change. I mean, this is what happens when we repent. We realize that we've gone against God's ways and therefore we confess what we have done and we take the initiative in doing so by confessing. We take the initiative. Let me share with you what confession does not look like. <laughs> So back when I was pastoring in Southern California in Chino Hills, I still remember this, this particular worship service. I was preaching, and in the back left corner from the stage were these two junior high boys. I knew both of them, and I knew their parents really well, and they were messing around big time back there. Thankfully, they're near the back. They weren't disturbing the other people because they were near the back, but they certainly were disturbing me. And I kept watching them. They were laughing and giggling and hitting each other and pushing each other and all stuff for like the whole time. And I have to admit, I had to just finally stop looking at them and look away. Afterwards, uh, I was in the lobby after the service was over. I was in the lobby and these guys walked by and I said, hey guys, come here. And I wanted to have a little chat and shared with them a few of my thoughts of how, you know, that's not the most appropriate behavior in church. And that, that was it. But one of their dads, who's a good friend of mine, saw that conversation going on. And when they got home, asked his son, well, what was that about? Son told him what it was about. And then the next week, I got this letter in the mail. This is what repentance is not. Ready? Dear Pastor Romberger, I'm not writing this letter because I want to. It's more like my dad told me to, or else I'd get grounded but then I'd want to do it so I don't get grounded. Junior high, remember. I'm sorry I was being disturbing in church last Sunday, but Ryan was making most of the giggling and commotion. <laughs> I know right now you are thinking blame, 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 but it's true. Ryan was sticking candy into his upper lip and then looking at me and then looking at me, drops it on my shorts, all wet and soggy. <laughs> Parentheses, I have the stains to prove it. <laughs> then 
it would roll off onto the ground and he'd pick it up and put it in one of the pouches he has in his Bible. Uh. Then he writes, I hope that someday I can be responsible enough to do this sort of thing on my own and not have my dad telling me to write a letter to the pastor because of disturbing church by eating candy, sincerely, and then his name. That is not repentance. <laughs> it's Ryan's fault. And I'm only doing this because my dad's going to ground me if I don't write this. Huh. I had a married couple in my office one time and they um, came forward because the wife had found out that her husband was committing adultery and had been doing so for a while. I knew this couple decently and the man says to me right after they sat down, he says, I just want you to know that if you want me to jump through some hoops or do some things, you know, I just, I'm not going there. And I said to him, I said, well, that means you're not repentant. He says, oh, no, I'm really sorry. I said, okay. Let me show you, let me tell you what really sorry is in a context like this. True repentance is, I'm so sorry for what I've done. I will do whatever it takes to get things right and to build the trust back of my wife. I will get rid of whatever I need to get rid of. I will embrace what I have to embrace. I'll jump through hoops if I have to jump through hoops. I will do what I have to do in order to get things right. So that's true repentance. And he says, oh, I, I'm very sorry, blah, blah, blah. And then certainly later on, I found out that he was, went on with that lifestyle and they ended up getting a divorce. Very sad story. He never in his heart said, I'm going to come clean. I'm going to confess. and I'm going to get things right. I'm going to change how I live. There's a big difference between getting caught and coming forward and confessing. Now, you can truly be sorry after you get caught, but I would say most of the people I'm aware of when it comes to big sin... It doesn't come out until they have been caught. And then they do some level of confession. But here in this case, these guys come forward and confess what they have done. Not only that, they don't just confess their sins, but they divulge their practices, it says in verse 18. They divulge their practices, meaning they go public with what they did and how they did it. Why? They come completely clean. We want you to know everything that's there. Now, in some circumstances, that wouldn't be appropriate, right, to share that, but they choose to do that. Why? They don't want this thing to spread. They want it to be done. They want to go public so that they're held accountable. They're taking a drastic measure here so that they will be changed and be accountable even publicly before people. They never want to go back to their old ways. They never want to go there. They're serious about change and they make these drastic measures to ensure that that change sticks. I saved a quote that was something that I heard decades ago at a Promise Keeper Stadium event a long time ago. It was from a pastor named Danny DeLeon. And he said these words about sin. He said, sin will take you farther than you ever intended to go. It will keep you away longer than you intended to be away. It will make you pay more than you intended to pay. You see, when we dabble in sin, it's okay for a while. But then if God, I mean, Satan's ultimate goal is to have us be trapped in it, to be addicted in it. So we can't get out of it. 
And he said, sin will take you farther than you ever intended to go. It will keep you away longer than you intended to be away. It will make you pay more than you intended to pay. So a long time ago, decades ago, Las Vegas used to have these ads that was family-friendly. Bring your family to Vegas. And they would show families together and they show them at Circus Circus and different places and kids playing in the pool with their parents. And then for whatever reason, they just stopped doing that and they went to a new campaign that they've been doing for a long time. You know the campaign, right? What goes on in Vegas, help me, stays in Vegas. You can go to Vegas for a few days, you go for a weekend, you can go for a whole week. And nobody will ever know what you did there. Sin away. And you can go back home. Nobody will ever know. Sin without consequences. Hmm. There's no such thing as sin without consequences. Just um, at New Year's, Jane and I were in Denver visiting our kids and we were on Southwest Airlines, and because of COVID, they had to make some changes on their flights. And instead of a direct flight from Denver to San Jose, we had to go through Vegas, have a stopover. We didn't have to leave the plane. We only had 40 on our flight from Denver to Vegas. But then they told us when we got in Vegas, stay in your seat if you're staying, you know, to go on to San Jose. Um, every seat's going to be full from Vegas on. And it's January 2nd. And we're in the middle of covid and without being too judgmental, almost every single person who walked out of that flight was young, seemed like they were by themselves, and they looked like they had partied hard. And I'm thinking, we are in a COVID tube. <laughs> and we're in this tube for the next hour and a half. And I don't think any of these people cared about COVID. We didn't get sick, thankfully. But what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. There's no such life. And these sorcerers want to get rid of the shackles of their sinful ways and decide to take drastic measures to get things right with God and others. Let me ask a question. When's the last time, if ever, you took drastic measures to get out of the sin that plagues you, that you're addicted to, that continues to come back to you over and over again, but you don't want to deal with it. You like it, for one. You, you, you want to keep doing it secretly. You have a secret life when you're on the road than when you're at home. When's the last time you took drastic measures to get things right with God, things right with God and others? Do you need to do that now? They confess their sin. They divulge their practices. Get this, number three, they eliminate the temptation. They eliminate the temptation. You can always run back and embrace the sin, right? But if you get rid of it as much as you possibly can, it's harder to run back to it. Look at verse 19 one more time. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Huh. These magic books were possibly full of spells, incantations used for evil and harm to other people. And these... Books are worth a lot of money. They're valuable. People would spend a lot of money to be able to, to have what's in these books. So, so why not just put these books aside for now? Why not just sell them? 
You know, it's harder to get rid of things of value, right? It's harder to be done with things that you've invested in for a long time when it comes to sin, like a long-term relationship. It's harder to get rid of that and just say, I'm just done with it. It's harder to get rid of a group of friends that you know are bringing you down in ways that you should never be a part of. And you just need to say, I can't be a part of this group anymore. I'm done with it. But they're your friends and you've been with them for years. It's hard. Or a career path that takes you places that you shouldn't be, places of temptation you know that are hurting you. But if you leave that, it's gonna hurt you financially. If you leave that, that, that particular career, but you know if you do, you might be in a better place in your, in your purity and holiness before God. Or an addiction, addiction to porn, alcohol, drugs, gambling, you name the addiction. You've invested a lot in it over the years. And, and you don't even, can't even imagine a life without it. And it would take drastic measures to get it out of your, of, your, of your life or an obsession like sports or recreation or art or anything that, that causes you to cross the line into obsessive behavior and you've invested a lot in that. It's hard to get rid of things you've invested in and you've paid for it and you spent time in and you've cared about. So why burn the books? Why not just pack them up and put them in storage? Why not just sell them because they're worth a lot and you can use the money for good things, right? You could use it for God's things if you take that, that money. Huh. Well, if you put the books in the box in the storage area at a time of weakness, you're gonna go down and find that box in the storage area and open it up. It's like if chocolate cake is your big you know, thing that's really causing you to, to stumble with the diet, don't keep a chocolate cake in the fridge, right? Don't keep it in the fridge. At a time of weakness, you're going to go to the fridge and you're going to get a nice slice of cake and you might as well get a really big slice if you're going to break the rules, right? If you sell the books, they're now in other people's hands so that they can continue on in the sinful behavior. So these guys took drastic measures and they lost this investment of time and money and they burn them all so nobody else can have them. Why let somebody else continue with the sin? Get rid of it, eradicate it. They take drastic measures to do that. And they make a public declaration that these ways were sinful and they were wrong. They confess, they divulge their practices, and then they burn the books. They make a big deal about a new change in their life. They're burning down their past life, starting over with a new life. They go drastic so that Jesus can be glorified inside of them. Let me make this comment. When we do things like this, it will be hard. It will be painful. People will not understand. You might lose friends. You might have a spouse that thinks you went crazy. But you will never regret it. Never regret it. Never regret it. Verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That great little tag on to the end of the story. The word of the Lord, interestingly enough, continued to increase and prevail mightily. God's word, the truth that's in God's word, the actions that go with behaving according to God's word went on and prevailed and grew mightily because God's word is alive and is active and it is life altering and changing us from the inside out. Now, 
There are appropriate times to do things like in a tent meeting <laughs> to have people come forward and to make a drastic confession. That's not what I'm going to be asking us to do today. Although maybe that's what's needed today. Because there's a lot of people that maybe aren't in the circle that need to know what's going on in your life. But possibly today you know that this message applies to you. You know the area or areas that you have got to take drastic measures to get rid of. You know that it's the right thing to do, and you know deep down that if you do that, on the other side of it, you'll be glad that you did it, and God will bless. So I'm going to call you privately where you are to a time of confession, time of divulging, a time of eliminating the temptation. And then it'll be up to you, however you want to do that. But if you do that this morning here, when you leave here and go away, plan on some actions on how you're going to do that, who you're going to tell, what actions you're going to take to eliminate what is in your life that you know needs to be removed from your life. So I ask you to bow your heads right now. And just at a time between you and the Lord, I want to walk you through a time of confession, divulging one's practices, and eliminating the temptation. So take this time before the Lord. And first of all, confess to him what it is or the specific things, maybe plural, that you know that you need to confess to him right now. Don't just listen to this message and say, I'm glad somebody else is hearing this. This is for each one of us here. What do I need to confess before the Lord? He already knows. He knows. But you need to confess and say, this area is out of line and to confess that to him. And subscribe to him what you do. He already knows, but divulge your practices to him. Be very specific. And then make a plan to eliminate the temptation in your life. What will that be? That'll be no, no private computer or phone in your, in your bedroom by yourself. It will be a leaving of a job. It will be a canceling of a subscription. It will be the ending of a relationship. It will be Tell the Lord what it will be. And if appropriate, this week, tell someone you trust what you have done and ask them to hold you accountable to these actions. These guys went public, which held them to a public accountability. Go to someone you trust someone that you know loves you no matter what and tell them what you have done and ask them to hold you accountable. And the Lord will forgive you and the Lord will give you grace on the other side of this and he will love you through it. He's gonna love you no matter what, 
but he will choose to use you and empower you in new ways, a fresh start. As you stand clean before him. So Lord God, for myself and every one of us that are here, for all those who are listening at their homes or wherever they might be, Lord, may we take this seriously, not just casually, to confess, to divulge, and to eliminate that which is outside the bounds of what's okay with you, Lord. May we realize that on the other side of this will come a freedom in you like we've never experienced before. And Lord, we want to honor you in our lives each step of the way. Doesn't matter how young or old we are, we want to honor you. Thank you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.